common? Nah, never mind. Hello and welcome everyone to the Digital Infrastructure Fund podcast. This is a special podcast which focuses on grantees of the Digital Infrastructure Fund, both past and present. This fund is dedicated towards helping researchers understand what is digital infrastructure? How can we understand it more and how can we empower people to support it for the long term? I'm very excited to talk to our guest today. She is a previous cohortee from a not this current cohort who has studied recognition, acknowledgments, and social pressures basically that happen in open source. I'm talking, of course, about Jana Gaulus. Jana is associate professor with tenure at UCLA. She was the recipient of a grant called the Power of Public Recognition and Reputation as Drivers of Open Source Success. This was a joint grant with Irina Itzma, who is at Carnegie Mellon, also a professor there. It sounds like a fascinating grant, and I'm so excited to get into it, but oh, audience, I have some bad news. Unfortunately, due to NDAs and various things, we can't focus exclusively on that grant. So instead, what we're going to do for this short podcast is talk about what Yana does outside of that grant. Yana has a long and illustrious research career that is focused on many different things, all of them sort of figuring out what does money mean? What does social recognition mean? How do you build open source projects effectively, well, and in a way that helps the community and the project thrive together? Now, Yana, I just talked a lot. So hello and welcome. How are you doing today? Hi, Richard. Great to be here. Doing fantastic. <laughs> Did I mess up anything so far besides no. the bad German at the beginning? Impeccable. I make do for the, you know, the German accent. <laughs> we can't edit that out as I was informed. <laughs> I'm sorry. We would try. So tell us how you got to the point where you had submitted a grant proposal to Ford and Sloan and the Digital Infrastructure Fund. How did you end up thinking this was a cool thing to do? Well, I have a long-standing interest in studying what motivates people and also what makes them think of their work and their contributions as meaningful. And in that line of research, I had an early field experiment published in 2017 in management that looked at the power of purely symbolic social recognition in the Wikipedia community, where you have, it's very similar, right, to most OSS open source projects, where you have people who do a lot of the work and most of the work, in fact, voluntarily in their spare time. And one of the big issues this community is facing, as many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware, is retention of those editors, of those contributors or users. And specifically, a point of concern is newcomer retention. And so with that field experiment, I collaborated with the German language edition and community of Wikipedians, as they call them, and uh, set up this award scheme and then ran a field experiment. Or some of your listeners may be more familiar with the term randomized control trial, where you have an initial pool and then you randomize people into treatment group who get the recognition and control group who do not get that recognition. And all of them would have deserved some kind of newcomer. Recognition And what I show here, and that randomization is crucial to establish the causal effects of recognition. Another point worth noting is that this is purely symbolic. So my background is in economics. And here on Wikipedia, what is fascinating is that people use pseudonyms as very often, though I know in open source, of course, there is a, you know, you have your name more often on the line. But what that makes this context specifically interesting for economists in order to show this is purely symbolic, has no offline material consequences if you get this small recognition from the community. So 
the standard economic arguments for why this might be motivating can't hold. And then what I show is that now in a nutshell, I keep it short now, is that this purely symbolic recognition increases the retention rate significantly by 20% in the month after somebody got recognized. And this effect, moreover, holds for an entire year after the initial award bestowal. So that was the first experiment that was extremely interesting. And of course, as so often with many studies, it opened more questions <laughs> than... I definitely have some questions about that. So that's super fascinating. One of the things I really want to know is when you talk about superficial recognition, what do you mean? What sorts of recognition are you talking about? Yeah, that's a good um, point. Um, so my work has focused so far on awards, and that is a form of social recognition. It's a more formal form of recognition, mostly, than just saying, giving somebody private positive feedback, for instance, which could also be conceived of as social recognition. I do want to point out that it's not superficial in a pejorative sense. I wouldn't call it superficial recognition. It really is meaningful social recognition. And this award in this context that I studied was very much modeled. I also have a book on honors versus money. And um, in there, we also provide an overview of the different types of awards used in different sectors. In this case, for Wikipedia, I modeled this very much after state honors systems, where you have the Légion d'honneur, which is one of the most famous honors systems originally created by Napoleon in France. And here I started out with the Edelweiss with one star. The Edelweiss name was actually coined by a community member who was supporting this project and who was, and this is, this is important because this is not just me coming in as an outsider. Back then I was pretty much an outsider and handing out random awards. No, this was a meaningful uh, form of social recognition in the sense that there is an award board or an award page that you can see that describes the Edelweiss, the purpose behind it, and also names some of those reputable Wikipedians who were behind this project. And so that's very much like an award-giving body. You can also think of other honors where you see who are the givers, and mostly they are reputable people or more senior people in a field. And so that makes it very meaningful, much more meaningful if somebody like me came in as an individual and handed out you know, awards. So there's an award page. And on that award page, people's pseudonyms would be listed of a given month. So this experiment, actually, I ran this for more than a year that I um, handed out e every month on the same day, this award, which means the pseudonyms of the given month's recipients cohort were added to this Wikipedia page of the Edelweiss Award. And also on their own user pages, people or the, more precisely the user talk page, I would post the award, which was a digital symbol of the Edelweiss flower with a star. I actually hand drew this, <laughs> believe it or not, and, and had like the small template that, that just had the usual award language. I very much appreciate your question here because it is a very important one since studying monetary incentives is much easier. Everybody knows what a dollar is. <laughs> but with awards, really the devil, or I should say the angel, is in the details, which makes this such a rich field to study. There are so many different dimensions of social recognition that we still need to further unpack. And in this case, it was public within this virtual community. And importantly, there were people behind this award scheme that made it really meaningful as well. And your results are really wonderful. I mean, 20% retention is amazing in the next month and then lasts the entire year. That's fantastic. One of the biggest issues that we have with digital infrastructure is actually making sure that open source communities retain all their members for the long term, because that's the institutional knowledge, which often isn't encoded in the project itself. Now, when you mentioned that the awards are awards, the sort of honorary titles given out, uh, like the Legion d'Honneur, you know, it was a ribbon you would wear. 
have you looked at other sorts of recognition, such as, say, having your name in a newsletter, or would you say having badges? Are those useful since they don't come from a particular person, but from gained reputation? What other sorts of awards have you looked at? I have, yes, in, in different studies. So I also have a paper that's currently available in working paper version. And in fact, we are currently revising it um, because we have gathered new data. And that is with about a field experiment within NASA that we conducted with NASA. And it is of interest here in this context, too, because, again, the main goal was to motivate and incentivize people within the NASA community, so employees, civil servants and contractors, to engage more with this crowdsourced innovation platform that they have within the agency. So there is something called externally facing crowdsourcing platforms where, you know, NASA, too, is, a, is really spearheading that approach as well, where they open up their innovation towards outsiders and seek to motivate people whom they have no relationship with, right, to submit solutions. And then there's a prize winner. Those tend to be contest based. You give the prize to the person who submitted the right or the best solution. However, that is judged. Now, what this paper, though, focuses on is internal crowdsourcing, which has so far received somewhat less attention, but it's very important because many organizations are using it based on this premise that opening up innovation, democratizing innovation. Of course, many of you will know Eric von Hippel's wonderful work that shows the benefits of crowdsourcing and opening, freeing up innovation, so democratizing innovation. And they seek to do this, many organizations try to do this within their boundaries, so within their employee workforce. And that creates its own challenges. And so that's what we looked at with this paper. So first off, what we show and that some new data that we have gathered is that there are important concerns that are rooted really in the incongruence between this peer-based, open, democratized approach of it to innovation on the crowdsourcing platform versus the original company hierarchy, the legacy, you know, everybody knows NASA is a hierarchical organization as so many. In fact, some people define firms as hierarchies. And so that poses an intricate challenge for firms to adopt these peer-to-peer -peer democratized open approaches. And so we show that this incongruence between the culture of the existing organization and the espoused or this aspired culture of peer-to-peer -peer problem solving creates important barriers. And then we tested, and this is now where your question um, comes in, we tested different forms of recognition that were conveyed. In this case, they were actually promised ex ante, and they were conveyed via email. So either you were promised, either you were in the control group, or you were told that if you engage with the people who really meaningfully contribute to this platform, they will be recognized in front of their manager. So that would be, you know, in line with the hierarchy, with the existing hierarchy. Or there were two forms that we were interested in, and one of them is exactly linked to the newsletter that you mentioned. Both of these other forms are with a less defined audience. In one case, it's digital recognition on the newsletter and on an online Hall of Fame page. And the other one was tangible offline recognition with the pin. <laughs> so exactly your two forms. We put it to the test. Those are quite salient. You see them oftentimes used. But what we find is that only the managerial recognition incentive, when you were promised that your manager would be made aware, had a significant average treatment effect. We also have some intriguing indications that there was heterogeneity, so that different groups of people responded differently to these kinds of incentives. And that while, yes, the scientists and engineers who are used to getting recognition 
they didn't really respond to those additional pin, you know, because they have all these really very meaningful pins already on their shoulders and breasts covering their attire. So those scientists, engineers at the core who are already used to getting attention, they didn't respond well to that. Some, in fact, even ridiculed this. We even did some interviews. But administrative support staff who otherwise do not stand in the limelight and who otherwise don't get recognition, they actually seemed, and this is qualitative, of course, future research needs to investigate these heterogeneities more, but they seem to respond very positively to this prospect of finally also, you know, getting a form of recognition. And specifically, this offline recognition seems to have been with a pin. So one of my favorite quotes from the interviews here was that, yes, NASA has many recognitions, but maybe just the average Joe would like to be recognized more. And that speaks to, the, you know, our desire to make meaningful contributions and at some point also to be seen for them. It's not like we expect a paycheck or anything, but just getting, we are social animals, right? And just getting others positive attention can be extremely motivating. I love that. I love that so much. It sounds like you're much more than an economist. I think an economist focus on a much smaller or different area. This almost sounds like anthropology. I'm reminded a lot of Malcolm Gladwell's work, where he talks about different types of societies, especially because of the book that you have out with Oxford University Press, Honors vs. Money. Well, I'm linking, which you have co-written with Bruno Frey. What's very interesting about this is I'm thinking about different sorts of societies, where there's societies which are honor-bound, societies which are not. And so you have, say, the Scottish clan system, which then moved to Appalachia, where if you insult someone, it's your job as a person in that community to stand up and punch the other person down. And it's very interesting to see how not necessarily that system, but other systems of identity and recognition have lent themselves towards open source movement. I am a long-term naysayer of badges. I think I've lost friends and probably killed communities with my strong opposition to Badges I don't think are that meaningful because I prefer mm-hmm. that people would just not use them. But that's also typical for me because maybe I'm just an overprivileged white dude who got too many badges throughout his life. And maybe I should learn to actually accept that other people may like those things. And that's okay for them. And I should just stop complaining. So I'm thankful for you changing my mind during this interview. I will try to not naysay them as much. Likewise, Richard, I have to say, I really appreciate it whenever I can talk to somebody who is, you know, more critical. And in fact, you're in good company. Like I remember The Economist, I think in 2004, had had this quote, honors, they are ridiculous and cannot be improved upon. And I very much, you will be surprised, but when it comes to badges and this badgification, gamification, right? I am also quite skeptical, and I think we have to apply a good degree of skepticism also, because those systems, that's also, I will make a point here about the difference to what I tend to study, but those systems, just like bonus systems, they can be easily gamed. They can lead to people's motivation shifting more and more towards getting these badges and accolades and away from the actual substance and their passion. So it can derail people's at risks derailing people's motivation. I'm reminded also even of such benign interventions that it isn't even a badge, but like the streak visualization, right? That every day you contribute to open source, you get a green dot and how this can get people hooked. And you find like blog posts about people. I I wrote one of those ones for a hundred days and it changed my life. I I, I didn't. (laughs) Well, I found another one where their partner gave birth to their child and the person felt like they had to do something so that they wouldn't lose their whatnot streak. But that's just one case. Again, incentives, they can be powerful, but they can also powerfully go wrong. 
And I will make one point here in this community in particular. So I'm very grateful that you give me this opportunity to talk about, which is about another type of distinction between award types and so types, forms of social recognition. There's on the one hand, um, and I can link the paper, it's um, also co-authored with my fabulous advisor, PhD advisor back then that was published in Strategic Management Journal in 2016, where we introduced this distinction between confirmatory and discretionary awards. Confirmatory awards are very much like these badge systems that are automated by and large. So you are told exactly which thresholds you have to hit. And of course, just like the rat in the hamster's wheel or the hamster in the hamster's wheel, I shall say, you fulfill that, right? And you start focusing on that goal and, and you perform within that system. Those are the confirmatory awards that are fairly asocial, if you will. You know, it's, it's a machine behind the system that, could, that pretty much bestows these awards and badges. On the opposite side is what I consider much more powerful and meaningful and also a much more important complement to the otherwise existing incentives that we all know and also within companies, right, bonuses and so on. And that's discretionary awards where somebody, for example, a jury evaluates people's work or they see that somebody constantly puts in extra hours to help others, which would go unnoticed by most any incentive system I know of because it's not measurable, it's not quantifiable. And in fact, you shouldn't even quantify it because that would again derail people's motivations. And then exposed takes pause and says, listen, let's take some time. We want to recognize the efforts that you are putting into maintaining this community, for example, and in a sincere way. And in fact, I think it might be even better to not tie this to a schedule where you are forced to do this every year, but in fact, do it whenever the occasion arises and also transparently communicate somewhat the criteria or at least who is involved, right? Because of course, that's a risk of discretionary incentive systems and discretionary recognition system, which is that it might reinforce the established hierarchies and, and stereotypes, right? So you have to ideally tie that, couple that with a system that makes sure that people who might not fit the stereotype also surface and that you're aware of everybody's contributions, right? So we want to not just have two dudes who make suggestions, but in fact, ideally broaden the, the people of, or your jury and your selection process. Think very clearly about the selection process. I think, and then I, I sorry, you can, you see how this gets me going because it's such an important topic because I've also run experiments where we found backfiring effects, much yeah. to everybody's surprise. I think many people spend much too much attention specifically, maybe in corporate contexts though, on what comes with a given incentive or award. What's the sum of money attached to managers in particular, and a little too little attention on the actual structure of the incentive, on the process, on how you want to make sure to try to see people's contributions and efforts and recognize them. Again, just like that very much. And I see a lot of interesting research lines I want to go down, but we only have a short period here and I want to make sure we get as much of your brain as possible. So one of the great things about having accolades, one of the great things about being recognized is that you can form a sense of identity around that. You can think, oh, I'm the kind of person that does this, or I'm a good person, or people really like me. Now, I know you've done self-stereotyping work, and how people see themselves influences their behavior, particularly in open source projects or large citizen science projects. Can you talk a bit about that in specifically talking to the gender gap in STEM? This is an issue that intrigues me and also frustrates me a lot, which is that, of course, there are various sources that contribute to gender gaps. And as you said, so I'll be focusing on gender gaps, being mindful that gender is not the only dimension, right? 
and this is just now since my research was my first research here was focused on gender as the main as the dimension. So we ran laboratory studies where we were able and we used a nicely established paradigm from previous research that allowed us to say, okay, we study a context where we can rule out social discrimination and even fear of social discrimination, like not being listened to by maybe a majority male group in a male, stereotypically male field such as STEM. So we rule that out. Specifically, we bring people to the lab and we have them work in teams of two in our context. And then we ask them, they don't see each other, which means nobody knows what my gender is. That's important. But the team's interest is to surface the right idea. So for the team, you want to, everybody gets asked the same questions and to indicate it's a multiple choice context to indicate which answer they think is right. And then to say where in line they want to put their answer. And the more you put it to the front of the line, the more likely it is that your team if your answer is the, the one that's furthest to the front of the line, your answer is going to be submitted for the team. And it's in the team's interest, again, to identify the right answers. So that the smart people or the, those who have the correct response to a given question should be the ones who put their answers further to the front. So that gets submitted and the whole team will benefit. Very much mirroring other outside of the lab contexts where you are, for example, in a seminar room or in a meeting and in a Zoom meeting nowadays. And you discuss a given question and you want the whole team will benefit from hearing people who have good ideas. The problem is that, and that's the first thing we show here for the case of STEM, that if the problem you're talking about is male typed, in our case math, women are significantly less likely to speak up. So they put their answers further to the back, even controlling for whether or not that question was correct and controlling for their prior ability. You know, we have different ability proxies. So you observe two identical answers that are both correct and women are less likely to speak up, in other words. And then you, the, what allows us to say this is self-stereotyping, and this is very much in line with previous research, what we also show is that this is not something that would say that women just are less confident than men. No, because when you change the subject type, the field that this question comes from to verbal, which is gender neutral, we don't find any gender gap in speaking up. So the channel here is very much linked to these stereotypes that are attached to a given field. And we all know coding is male typed, right? So if I may now, of course, with caveat that this is lab experimental work, but you know, when you are in context, it's been shown for other fields as well that are male typed, then you find that entire subgroups of the population are less likely to speak up just because they don't think that they have what it takes or that they don't think that they are as good as the others in the room. And so they don't, might not raise their hand as quickly or they might not raise it at all, right? Even though they have the right answer. So that's the problem. And then we study whether we can use recognition in this context to close these gender gaps. And specifically, we vary the degree of publicness of recognition, which is a perennial question that I often encounter when I talk to people in the field and managers, you know, how public should my award be? What we did here is we looked at purely private recognition that only the recipient would see who had the most responses right. They would get that award. Very much, you, I like that you put it on um, identity because in fact, that was part of the design of this award, like the Math Master Award, the Math Genius, like putting a label on this to create some soft, sort of identity and also conveying emotions with emojis. And uh, so we had a private, we had a semi-public where there was no face visibility, but the team member was informed that let's say you got this award and then we had a public award ceremony where the award recipients would come to the front of the room and the others would give them a round of applause and stand up. 
And what we find is now to make this short, that it's only so recognition writ large motivates um, and makes recipients more confident to speak up. So that's good news. The one form that closes the gender gap is the public recognition, the ceremony. And of course, now the question is, why is that? And there are two distinct mechanisms. And that's something that we'll look into with future research as well. It could be on the one hand that being seen as the person who received this award confers legitimacy in this context where I'm otherwise not really feel that I'm legitimate, the legitimate leader, where I'm a counter stereotypical. So that's the being seen mechanism. On the other side, it's also this seeing the audience of recipient of non-recipients makes you might actually increase um, women's trust in this signal even more so than men, men's trust. So when you get recognition, I've oftentimes, but this is just anecdotal evidence, when talking to colleagues also, this question of did I deserve and it's possible that when you fit the stereotype, right, of course I deserved it, right? It doesn't come to anybody's surprise. But when you don't fit the stereotype and you're already subject to these self-stereotyping patterns that are so vicious, and then actually seeing that, yes, not everybody got this recognition is important and seeing that audience and maybe getting that emotional momentum as well may be important to really compel the person to become more confident and speak up. Another line of research that this opens is though, whether this is what the emotional experience is, is it positive that, oh, finally I'm free to speak up, to speak my mind? Or is it more of a pressure that I feel that now ooh, I must be the team leader, but I really have to, we have a German expression, jumping across my own shadow. <laughs> I have to really nudge myself and I don't feel comfortable. Maybe at some point I will, but yeah, that would be of course important for when we're, our interest is human well-being as well. I really like that expression, jumping over your own shadow. That's really great. Now, I know you're doing current research and I want to get to what your current research is because I think it has been based upon this other research that you've been doing for the past you know, X years. You're obviously very competent in this field. You obviously have done a ton of work here trying to figure out what motivates people, what makes them self-identify, what makes them feel better, what makes them better members of community, what makes the community as a whole thrive. That's all a given. What's not a given is how this relates to digital infrastructure. So digital infrastructure itself is a small subset of a field. There's not many people working in it. One of the reasons why this grant is so useful, this fund is one of the main funds out there doing work in this subfield. So what is it for you that makes this interesting as opposed to, say, working with people at Harvard trying to improve the competitiveness of their sub-team at Goldman Sachs? What is it that makes digital infrastructure itself an interesting cause to research about? The first response here is that it is a public good. And I guess this also relates to the definition of digital infrastructure, right? It's something that basically actually increases the overall pie. But it's very hard to think about ways of making this sustainable when we include in the definition, not just the, the technological component of this infrastructure, but also the human component of, on which the, all the backs on which this infrastructure rests. I think actually that is the crux of making digital infrastructure sustainable because, you know, technological advances, they are pretty good and they are scalable. But for human labor and motivation, that's not a benign issue or not an easy issue to solve. And so that's the main component. It has this public good component or commons. Even Eleanor Ostrom has also this wonderful work at the end when she looked at um, open source. And that for me is makes it more meaningful. I will say I also collaborate with private sector organizations. In fact, I col collaborate with organizations in the public, private, 
and non-profit sectors, so across all sectors. But of course, if there's a public goods component behind it, that is, just makes it much more meaningful and societally relevant for me to study. I like that answer. Thank you so much for describing it. I think the public good is a really good thing to work on. Although that also supposes that digital infrastructure is actually in the public good. It's in the best interest, which I'm not sure is entirely a given, but more on that later if you want to talk to me afterwards. So this is all really great. And thank you so much for doing this work and for trying to understand how humans contributing to the commons can live better lives and be better people, et cetera. What are you working on right now? I know we can't talk about what you actually got the grant for, which super stinks. Oh, listeners, I have some insider knowledge. So all I'm going to say is you should totally listen in to Yana Gallus' career in the future when this work does come out. But what work are you working on now? Oh, there are a lot of projects that I'm excited about, but I will mention one that is particularly top of mind at the moment. This and the first paper here just got accepted at Psychological Review. And this is joint work with Joey Reef, a fantastic graduate student at UCLA Anderson, with Emil Kamenica, an economist at Chicago Booth, and Ellen Fisk, a distinguished professor of anthropology at UCLA. So here's the anthropology connection that you already identified earlier. So this is probably so far my most interdisciplinary work. And the paper is called Relational Incentives Theory. And as that title suggests, it is, at, it, it is concerned at this whole line of research is about the intersection and the interactions between incentives and social relationships. It addresses such questions as how do incentives and social relationships interact? And when do incentives and why do incentives backfire? And what do we consider as backfiring? We shouldn't only consider effort, but also whether the relationship is enhanced or tarnished. And some of your listeners may be aware with research that suggests, oh, it's all about money and money backfires. But in fact, we in this paper make a quite provocative um, new point, which is that it's much more than the substance or the means of the incentive, the money. We should look at the schemes. Instead of just focusing on the means, we should look at the schemes. And that is, again, the point about structure. We have to look at the structure of the incentives in order to determine whether they are congruent which is good, or incongruent with the predominant relationship. And so here we draw on Ellen Fisk's wonderful work on relational models theory from the 90s, um, where he showed, and subsequent work has also shown, that there are really just four forms or structures that people use to coordinate. And those are, on the one hand, market pricing. Everybody knows that. Equality matching, you can think of siblings who divide a cake evenly. Everybody needs to get exactly the same amount. And then you have authority ranking, think of the military. Or, and that's the fourth form, communal sharing. We are all family, we're very close ties and the very close kinship, I should say. And, the, and we show that, in fact, when you look at incentives, there are four congruent structures, which makes you then see that, well, for market pricing relationships, you want to use proportional incentives. That is what is expected. And that is also what will lead to the greatest effort and to a perpetual or to a consolidation of market pricing relationships. But, and I think this is so interesting for the digital, I'll just focus now on two cells, on the market pricing on the one hand and communal sharing on the other, where you don't even want to track who does what. And here the congruent incentive is participation incentive. You want to honor people for their willingness to contribute even if you don't measure, even the elderly person who cannot maybe contribute to this ritual and, and slaughter a pig and whatnot and just sits around, but 
really shows that they are actually motivated and they would help if they could, right? So it's not based on output. It's really on the intent to pitch in and contribute. And the reason why I say this is interesting also for online communities, open source communities, is that here we struggle with this inherent quantifiability, right? Because of tech, everything a lot gets quantified, which is great for researchers on the one hand, but we need to be mindful because as soon as you quantify, let's say, pull requests and you put a tracker in, that makes, that means you are using a proportional incentive, which is congruent with market pricing. Now, if you are a community that seeks to foster communal sharing, we are all family um, we value, it's not meritocracy, we value anybody's contribution and willingness to contribute, even if it's not code, maybe in particular if it's not code and cannot hence be quantified in that manner. And we have to be mindful, right, about how we visualize these quant metrics, these data, in order not to incentivize people proportionally, but in fact recognize them for their participation. So I'm extremely interested to look into this now empirically going forward, where I think that this, the digitalization has great benefits in terms of providing us with all this data, but we really have to be careful about how we use it. Because even if it's just a pull request counter or on Wikipedia, an edit count, it is a metric. It is ultimately an incentive. It's not tied to money. In some contexts it is, but it is social recognition, which is an incentive. You get others' attention. And if there's a ranking of people based on how many pull requests they had in a given period, um, that is an incentive. And the important point here is not that it's not mon money or not linked to money, but that it's proportional. So it's the structure. I feel like had I listened to you five years ago, I would have saved a lot of mistakes when I was trying to be a community manager and I was measuring PRs and measuring comments and measuring contribution, which is sad because I knew of your research then. I just didn't think to look at it. So thank you so much for sharing of your wonderful background and what you've been working on. That is all super, super cool. I do not have very intelligent, smart comments to come up with now, nor do I have very incisive, meaningful questions, because you are such a fast and eloquent and quick talker that I really just am blown away by the amount of facts and science. And I want to go and do all of my projects over again differently. Luckily, we're running up on time, so I don't have to ask any more really insightful questions. I just have two left. One of them is, what does digital infrastructure mean to you? So to make it short and simple, for me, this is Indeed, coming back to it's on the one hand technology, right? The technology that we rely on, but at least as important is the human connections, human labor, human effort and time that is being put into the provision of this infrastructure. Basically, it's the technology, but also the backs, the human backs or the human hands, if you will, in this digital context that we all rely on. Excellent answer. Thank you so much. My final question, and I hope you'll apologize for me asking this, is if you were given a cake, today with your family of three triplets. And thank you so much for sharing their noises with us in the background. Listeners, I hope you managed to listen through. I think it's really wonderful to have children on the podcast. How would you split the cake? Hierarchically, communally, uh, portionally? I very much try to go for the communal okay. uh, sharing. And at this point, they just turned three in July. It's still possible. They are not yet in this at this age where they look at what the other got and want to have the exact same. So except for maybe one of them. <laughs> but so, far, so far, the communal sharing and the participation works phenomenally well, I have to say. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. I'm so glad. Wonderful Thank you for question. answering that question. Thank um, you so much. You asked such great questions and I really enjoyed the conversation. I do want to come back to the offer to chat afterwards because I'm intrigued by what you said and would like to learn more. I would love to take you up on that. 
listeners, you can as well, because Yana Gellis has a wonderful website where you can find all of her research, as well all of the links which we have mentioned, Eleanor Ostrom, Alan Trisk's paper that they co-published, and more will be in the show notes. This has been another episode of Digital Infrastructure Fund Podcast. Say that five times fast. If you're interested in anything else here, please do get in touch. We would love to talk more and collaborate, work more on this issue. Again, Yana, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>